Welcome to Holy Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Serena. And I'm Katie. And today we will be talking about two sections of Come Follow Me, section 30 in the Doctrine and Covenants, all the way to section 40. (laughs) (laughs) And for those who missed the wonderful news, we are a part of the Dialogue Podcast Network now. Beyond the Blocks, also a part of the Dialogue Podcast Network. If you want to check out their content, they have wonderful content every single week. For more information on Dialogue Podcast Network, you can go to their website, dialoguejournal.com. So quick summary on these 10 sections, 30 through 34 and 36, talk about revelation to specific people about being called as missionaries Section 35 is Revelation regarding Joseph's translation of the Bible and who was to assist him. 37 through 38 is Revelation instructing the saints to go to Ohio to escape persecution and to build a temple. 39 through 40 talk about Revelation given to James Coble, who is a Baptist minister. Methodist. It's actually Methodist. So I was wondering about that. Come follow me says Methodist, but the scriptures say Baptist. And Derek from Beyond the Block actually just sent us a PDF. A historian basically was curious about James Colwell, and turns out he was Methodist according to like these different sources. So this is Mormonism in the Methodist marketplace. James Colwell and the historical background of Doctrine and Covenants 39 through 40 by Christopher C. Jones. Hmm. And this was published in... BYU studies. Baptists and Methodists were bitter competitors for converts in antebellum America. Antebellum is before the Civil War. And the most successful evangelicals of their day. They shared a commitment to proselytizing the new nation, but differed in key points of doctrine and church government. Those themes immediately stood out to me in the Coville Revelations, and I drafted a short historical note on why it matters that James Coville was a Methodist and not a Baptist. Probably it would make James and other past Baptists and Methodists really upset that he was misidentified as a Baptist instead of a Methodist. Probably, yeah. Whoops. Maybe they'll, (laughs) uh, you know how they revise scripture and just fix errors. Maybe that's something that they'll fix eventually. They should. I mean, they fixed it in Come Follow Me, but not in the scripture. Right. Well, anyway, that's the summary. (laughs) Also, we're recording in person today because I'm visiting... Utah. So we might giggle more than usual because we can, we can play off of each other's faces we more. We can see each other. It's really nice. Yeah. Okay. Section 30 verse 11 says, not fearing what man can do for I am with you. I was just wondering, as disabled people, is this comforting or is this kind of unrealistic? Like, I don't know. I feel like the more marginalized you are, the more kind of like unrealistic this seems, you know, like don't fear what other people can do because I'm with you. Well, that didn't stop them from doing this and this and this and this to different groups of marginalized people. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a good thought. While you were talking, I know you mean marginalized as in like racially, ability-wise, LGBTQ people. But if you think about it, the early saints were marginalized at the time. I mean... I guess members of the church can be marginalized now, not in Utah, I would say, but at the time they were discriminated against and hated for who they were. You can look at how it was something that they chose versus something that you can't control, like literally the color of your skin. 
<laughs> but in a way, they did face marginalization when they were so new. They had to constantly, like, <laughs> watch out for themselves. They had to move multiple times because of persecution. So thinking about how this was given to a marginalized people, I think that that's really interesting. And and me personally, I do believe that that can still be comforting because of the eternal perspective where we know that mortal life is so short compared to eternity, but it's still hard when it's like day to day, mm-hmm. every day, nonstop. I feel like anytime I go in public, I face people staring at me for sure. People commenting most days. It's a daily thing. What are your thoughts on it? I mean, it doesn't really comfort me, (laughs) but that doesn't mean it's not comforting to other people. I think what you said about the early members of the church being marginalized in and of themselves is interesting. I actually had a note about that later on. In section 35, I'm kind of jumping, verse 13 says, I call upon the weak things of this world, Mm -hmm. those who are unlearned and despised, to thresh the nations by the power of my spirit. And in my notes, I was like, do you really, though? <laughs> um, I mean, Tell me why you wrote that. Uh, I have an idea, but... <laughs> I, I feel like this narrative is evident in a lot of scriptures in the Doctrine and Covenants and in a lot of conference talks and just things since the 1800s in the church of this victim narrative. I'm not saying that church members weren't persecuted because they definitely were in regards to mobs and tar and feathering and Joseph Smith being martyred and all this other stuff. But that doesn't mean that they're absolved of their own injustices, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of the feeling I get when we talk about early church history, like, oh, they suffered so much. And we can forgive them for anything they do because they were suffering, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's really dangerous. I mean, I think it's a human pattern to face oppression and then react to it and become an oppressor, you know? I think Mm -hmm. we see this a lot throughout history and throughout literature. And also, I I don't remember where I learned this. It might have been in Utah Valley Institute of Religion, which is interesting, but that every single religious group has their own narrative of victimhood wow if you look at it that way and you realize like okay everybody has their own narrative victimhood like being victimized is not special and i say that and i'm like i'm like cringing as i say that but what i mean is that like it doesn't make one religion truer than the other just because they've been victimized that's true doesn't mean that you get a free pass and we see that like in um personal lives as well like just the cycle of abuse in families how like difficult it is to learn appropriate coping mechanisms and to heal from generational trauma if that's all you've ever known you know and so it just perpetuates the cycle and that doesn't mean that you weren't abused if you are an abuser but that also doesn't mean that you can't be an abuser eventually if you are abused you know and I think that's really important to remember when we're talking about victimization as members of the church. Really good thoughts. I'm glad that you pulled that scripture because I saw that scripture too. And I thought about how sad it is. It lists three things of who God calls. Verse Mm -hmm. 13, it says, I call upon the weak things of the world, those (laughs) who are unlearned and despised. And I'm like, that's so sad that that's how he defines who is called instead Mm -hmm. of saying like, 
I call those who need to be part of the work. I don't know. I think it is cool that there's a pattern that he calls weak things and that you can be strengthened in God, but identifying people as a weak thing, people as unlearned, people as despised, especially despised. I'm like, dang, (laughs) so sad. But I mean, early saints were often weak and despised for being called, you could say. But then even today, I would say weak things of the world are despised. Disabled people are looked down upon Mm -hmm. or looked at as weak. And that means that we're not valuable to society. Which is why I asked, do you really, though? Yeah. (laughs) Because, like, nowadays, disabled people and neurodivergent people, who you can argue are the, quote, weak things of the world, who are despised and unlearned, right? If we want to serve missions, we're, like, largely excluded from preaching the gospel. And if by some miracle we are included, then we have, like, very few accommodations made for us and we have to suffer a lot of us through like the entirety of our mission gritting our teeth through emotional and physical pain which is why I went on this tangent about victimization because it seems like in this verse the church is kind of like picking and choosing who is the weak thing you know Mm. like they see themselves as the weak and despise people but then like weak and despise people even within that are kind of like, oh no, you don't count, you know? Yeah, if we're all grouped together as we're all weak and despised of the world because we're members of the church Uh and we're doing our best and we're imperfect, but then there are people that are further marginalized within that who are further seen as weak, further seen as despised or unlearned, Mm -hmm. and that don't really fit into the mainstream culture of the church. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So actually, throughout sections 30 through 34 and then 36 there's promises given of those who serve missions and initially when I was seeing these promises I was like oh but this was a promise given specific to you know Thomas B. Marsh so Mm -hmm. I can't say 100% that I can apply this to me but if you look and preach my gospel there's a section that says here's what the Lord promises if you serve a mission and these things (sighs) are listed not all of them But a lot of them, and I wonder how they pick and choose, like, oh, this would apply to all missionaries, but this one wouldn't. Yeah. But yeah, they specifically pull from these sections and say, if you serve a mission, you can have these blessings given to you. Let me just list them, and there's one I specifically want to focus on. There's multiple, but let's see what (laughs) we want to talk about. According to these sections, if you serve a mission, your sins will be forgiven, You will have a place prepared for your labors, meaning people's hearts will open. And it does say people's hearts will open. The world will not receive you, but the people will receive you. Christ will be with you and be your shield. Nothing will prevail against you, including hell will not prevail. Your enemies shall be under your feet. You will be guided by the Spirit what to do and where to go. You and your family will be blessed eternally. Your family will come to believe in the church, which, you know, that one, it's not normally said that everyone who serves a mission will, but that is a promise given. Your tongue shall be loosed, your mouth will be opened, and it will be filled. I will go before your face and prepare the way. And then the last one is, if you ask in faith, you will be able to perform miracles. And it lists very specific things about allowing the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the lame will walk, things like that. 
So, oh, there's one more that I wanted to specify. It says, you will be laden with sheaves. <laughs> yes. And that one, just so people know, it's symbolism for being a harvester in the field. That's kind of the symbolism that's put to missionary work a lot of the times. Laden with sheaves, it's an emblem or a symbolic object of success, that you'll find success as a missionary. I feel like this also could be an ableist metaphor. Laden with sheaves on your back. That's a burden that is being placed on someone physically. Like, it's seen as a good thing. Yeah, it's seen as a metaphor for success, even though it's, like, if you look at the metaphor itself, it's like, your success is you carrying everything on your back of what you did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I I don't know if I think that's a good thing. Like, if you're remaining within the content of the metaphor, some people physically don't have the strength to carry those things on their back. Like, I probably wouldn't be able to. It excludes people who want to participate in missionary work but don't have a particular brand of strength, if that makes sense. I didn't think about that as an ableist metaphor, but it's using a literal thing where sheaves are literally seen as, like, Here's the success I'm bringing into my family. Yeah. It just plays into this whole idea of you need to work hard and you need to, like, be a cog in the machine, you know, in order to be worthy and have success. You know, I just feel like it's kind of capitalist and ableist. You know, people can still be good missionaries even if they can't do certain physical things that other people can, you know? Anyway. Yeah. (sighs) Well, let's look at Doctrine and Covenants 35.9. That's the one that's ask in faith and you'll receive Ugh. this list of miracles. Let me read the whole scripture. Okay. Section 35, it's verse 9. And whoso shall ask it in my name in faith, they shall cast out devils. They shall heal the sick. They shall cause the blind to receive their sight and the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak and the lame to walk. Mm. And this is in regard to a missionary, that they'll be able to do these things through faith. I, <laughs> there's no mention of the people's consent, you know. These disabled people's bodies are being used to showcase miracles and faith, which dehumanizes them and it's kind of performative. We need to bring this up because we have such a culture of, like, not respecting people's boundaries in the church. Like, whether that's sexually or emotionally or, like, intellectually. Like, we just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And it doesn't matter what they actually want because it's just, like, according to our faith, you know, because Mm -hmm. God is blessing us. Mm -hmm. Like, we're the ones who are in this position of action. And they're just, like, these passive vessels. Mm. So, yes, to play off of your idea, it's true that this scripture doesn't (laughs) mention consent. It's just saying, whoso shall ask it in my name and faith, they'll cast out devils, they'll heal the sick. Like, all these things will happen, but it doesn't talk about the people that are being healed and their thoughts on it. Mm -hmm. When I was looking into this, I was like, gosh, is that always the pattern where I feel like normally it says... By your faith, you'll be healed. At least Christ, when he heals people. And I was looking closer at the instances where he heals a couple people in the Bible. And I found two instances where there were moments where he asked for consent before he healed people. And I've never noticed this before. And it blew my mind. It just totally changed my perspective of like what it means to be healed. What it means when Christ says, by your faith, you'll be healed. Mm if by your faith you'll be healed means something different to you 
you know, by your faith, you shall be healed might mean to me becoming one with my body, becoming Mm -hmm. one with my disability, understanding why I have a disability, like myself, my spirit and my body becoming more connected. That could be me being healed. Anyway, sorry, let me share this example. Two examples. The first one is in Mark 10. The story is verse 46 through 52. It's the story of Bartimaeus, the blind man who's healed by Christ. So just to kind of lead into the story a little bit, Christ is walking through a crowd and Bartimaeus is on the side of the road begging and the crowd kind of passes him and Bartimaeus realizes that it's Jesus and he cries out and says, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And it says, and many charged him that he should hold his peace. So people were trying to silence him and ignore him and say, Mm. leave Jesus alone. And then it says, but he cried the more a great deal. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. So he's persistent. He's like, no, no, no. I need to talk to Jesus. And I'm like, good for him for standing up to himself against a freaking crowd. Like, geez. And then it says, and Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. So Jesus says, okay, yes, bring him over, of course. And the man rose and came to Jesus and... Jesus answered and said unto him, What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. So Christ didn't just see him and say, Oh, you're blind. Boom, you're healed. He said, What do you want me to do? He asked permission and allowed this person to have autonomy over their body Mm -hmm. and decide what he needed in that situation. And he didn't even like, if I can jump in there really quick, he didn't even like, ask him a yes or no question or like a leading question like he didn't even ask do you want me to heal you he asked an open-ended question Mm -hmm. so that the responder could answer completely of their own will without like feeling any sort of pressure to go either way wow Wow. that's what I loved too that he saw a person and he was like what do you need from me and then he said wilt thou heal me it wasn't like I'll heal you Yeah. yeah yeah I really loved that And then the other example is John chapter 5. It's a moment where there's this person that comes up to him with a disability. And the people around Jesus are like, ooh, it's the Sabbath. Are you going to heal on the Sabbath? And they're (laughs) judging Jesus. This person, when they come up to him, Jesus says in verse 6, Wilt thou be made whole? Meaning, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be healed? Again, Christ is asking for consent I'd never noticed these before, and maybe other people have noticed them and thought like, oh yeah, I knew that. But for me, it was a big deal to see that even Christ doesn't assume the desires of Mm -hmm. disabled people based on the fact that they're disabled. Christ still treats them like any other person and says like, what do you need from me? Mm -hmm. I'll heal you in whatever way you need because I love you. And want. Mm -hmm. And want because people's needs are intrinsically tied to our wants you know yeah that is really cool it just gives more scriptural evidence to the idea that we've talked about earlier about how disabled people can choose how our bodies present in the resurrection right Mm -hmm. maybe jesus christ will directly ask us that question you know What wilt that I would do for you? Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine what that means for people? Ability or disability put aside. 
just a person standing in front of Christ and him saying, what wilt that I would do for you? Mm-hmm. All the things that would open up in your mind. There's, I'm sure, so many things that are like big things and small things of what do I want from Christ? And the love that's in that question, not saying like, okay, here's what I need from you. Yeah. Follow my gospel. Do all these things. You know, I need this from you. It's just without any expectations, without any requirements, just unconditional love. What do you need from me? Remember that the resurrection is a gift to everyone, regardless of what their life looks like on earth. I like to think of Christ healing people on earth as a little mini glimpse into the resurrection because he got to make people whole in whatever way they needed to be made whole. And, oh my gosh, we need that. We need that kind of love in this church. And we really shouldn't assume what we think people need or put our assumptions of what our resurrected bodies, what we picture on other people. That's part of it, honestly. Christ respects our desires, our autonomy. And obviously when it's with our bodies, it affects disability with whatever our desires are. But you could even go into how it affects our transgender siblings, people with gender dysphoria, like people who, who, whose bodies aren't whole in whatever righteous desire they have to be whole. Going back to the scripture in Doctrine and Covenants, talking about whoso shall ask it in my name and faith, they shall do all these things, heal the sick, cause the blind to receive their sight, the deaf to hear. I think that's the gap that's missing. If these people want to be healed, then you shall heal them. You shall bring yeah. about miracles. We see that consent is talked about in other scriptures. It's just not brought in in this scripture. And I want people to realize that yeah. that's a divine part of mm-hmm. bringing about miracles. It's an essential part. If you really consider what it means by your faith, you shall be healed. And like we've said before, we don't think that people who want to be healed from their disabilities are bad. Like yeah. everyone has different needs and desires. That's ultimately what it comes down to. I love how, I mean, I don't want to say you stumbled upon it, but you just illuminated a whole new Christ-like attribute. I mean, and like you said, people are probably like, yeah, we've been talking about this forever, but like (laughs) Jesus Christ cares about consent, you know? Like, and I think, yeah, autonomy, independence, are things that are not often afforded to disabled and neurodivergent people. Mm-hmm. But I hope that, I don't know, maybe it's too much for me to hope that, like, Daryl Thorny listens to our podcast eventually <laughs> and be like, hey, y'all, look, we, can y'all start incorporating this? Like, <laughs> consent into conference talks, please? Like, yeah. like, from all of us disabled folks and all of us feminists out there, like, please? Mm-hmm. Like, can y'all put that up there with, like, Christ-like attributes? Add it to the young women's themes. Add it to the young men's themes. You know what I mean. Like, uh. Yeah, it's interesting that we have such a focus on agency in this church, but not when it doesn't go the church's way. That's you know not I mean? agency! Yeah. yeah. Yeah, if you really respect agency, you can, like, mm-hmm. encourage good and encourage kindness and, you know, encourage Christ-like attributes, but you have to consider how respecting agency is a Christ-like attribute. Yes. 
Ah, uh, yeah. Like, we talk about agency, but we don't talk about what that means. We don't talk about boundaries. We don't talk about yeah. manipulation. We don't talk about how pressuring people is a bad thing. We don't talk about different things that can impair someone's agency. Not everybody, but, like, sometimes people will say, oh, you shouldn't drink alcohol or do, like, drugs or something because it could impair your agency. Or dress immodestly dress- because mm-hmm. it impairs mm-hmm. men's agency. <laughs> Excuse me while I scoff at that kind oh, of idea because gosh. that's like the worst. Oh my gosh. It's it's pretty powerful, but like, Ugh. I'm sorry. If my natural body is impairing the agency of a man in the way God made me, then you like threatening people to go to hell unless they join the church and like keep all your neurotypical able-bodied heteronormative rules is also, like, impairing my agency. With that example that you shared, the church obviously recognizes that some things can impair agency, although I personally disagree with that example. (sighs) Anyway, I love how we started off this conversation talking about disability, and then we end up talking about, like, women's issues, and part of me is like, oh, wow, that's so random, but it's also not. It just goes to show, like, how intersectional this is, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, Bodily autonomy is bodily autonomy, whether that's disability and healing or sexual expression or gender identity and expression, you know, like. (sighs) Jumping back to section 31, I thought it was interesting in verse 10, it said, you shall be a physician to the church, but not unto the world because they will not receive you. And I was like, hey, I actually like that. You know, like you're not demonizing the people who aren't receiving the missionaries and you're respecting their boundaries. I feel like it's one of the few times where it mentions consent of the people that you can't or shouldn't try to, quote, heal people either spiritually or emotionally or physically if they don't want to be healed. Yeah. Really quick, when we listed the promises of serving, you mentioned laden with shoes was an ableist metaphor. Uh-huh. I found a ton of ableist metaphors in sections okay. 30 to 40. So my arm is not shortened. This is section 35, verse 8. For I am God and mine arm is not shortened, and I will show miracles, signs, and wonders unto all those who believe on my name. Here, it's actually referencing God's arm as God's power and authority. So it's saying my power and authority will not be limited, I guess. Yeah, I thought that ableist metaphor was Mm -hmm. really interesting to compare, like a part of the body to power and authority. Open ye your ears and hearken to the voice of the Lord. The part that talks about weak, unlearned, and despised are called. Hardening your hearts is mentioned. Their arm shall be my arm. They shall not be asleep when it's talking about people hearkening the... <gasps> How did I miss that? As someone with narcolepsy, I resent that. <laughs> and I think lots of disabled people have chronic fatigue and just simply need to rest more than able-bodied people so yeah I don't really like that metaphor either right because it sees it as like you're not receiving the gospel when if your body's naturally that way that doesn't mean that you're not a good member yeah mm-hmm. and then there's a part that says the scriptures are in God's bosom which I found was interesting doctrine and covenants 35 20 One more that's mentioned, one more ableist metaphor. So there's history behind this one. So let's kind of break it down a little bit. Because face value, it's seen as ableist, but it's actually, it's this whole thing. Let me just read it. Section 36, verse 6. Ah. 
crying repentance, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation and come forth out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted with flesh. In ancient days, when people had disease that was contagious, when they would change their clothes, people had to burn the clothes so other people wouldn't get infected with disease. Hmm. If you're unfamiliar with this concept and you look it up on the church website, well, there's a couple things that pop up, but the top two, it's an institute manual and a seminary manual. If you read the institute manual, which is still active today, it's called Doctrine and Covenants Student Manual. It says, Doctrine and Covenants 36.6, what does it mean to come forth out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted with flesh? The saints are commanded to hate the garments spotted with flesh. President Joseph Fielding Smith explained, This is symbolic language, yet is plain to understand. (laughs) Plain to understand. Okay. This is a wicked generation walking in spiritual darkness, and the punishment for sin is spoken of as punishment in fire. Garments spotted with flesh are garments defiled by the practices of carnal desires and disobedience to the commandments of the Lord. We are commanded to keep our garments unspotted from all sin, from every practice that defiles. We are therefore commanded to come out of the world of wickedness and forsake the things of this world. Mm. Now, I was really surprised that it went straight from the garments spotted with the flesh to practices of carnal desires and disobedience to the commandments of the Lord. Because if you know the history of why the phrase would be used, it's referencing disabled people or people that had skin infections, skin diseases, and that they need to try to be clean and not infect others. That's fine. That's history. And that's like to stay healthy, but to make it lead to carnal desires and disobedience that imposes the idea that a disabled person chose to have the skin condition. Do you know what I mean? Like when you compare it saying it's someone who's choosing to practice quote unquote carnal desires and quote unquote disobedience to the commands of the Lord, a disabled person who has a skin condition doesn't choose to have a skin condition. Whereas this is saying when you choose to disobey then it's going to spread like a virus to other people and throughout your life, and it's going to make it harder to obey God. Anyway, I really, really didn't like how the Institute Manual put it for students. If you go to the Seminary Manual, as far as I can tell, it's actually also still active. It's called Doctrine and Covenants and Church History Seminary Teacher's Manual. It says, Ask students to read Doctrine and Covenants 36.6 silently, looking for the basic message the Lord commands his missionaries to teach. To help students understand the phrase, garments spotted with the flesh, explain that in ancient Israel, clothing that was contaminated with disease was burned to prevent the disease from spreading. In this verse, the Lord compares disease with sin and thus commands us to avoid anything associated with sin. I'm really glad you brought that up because I was kind of, (laughs) in my notes, I was like, the flesh is falling off? Like, what kind of effed up metaphor is this? (laughs) But I, like, I didn't go down that rabbit hole, and I'm glad you did. It reminds me of section 38, verses 7 and 11. Verse 7 says, I am in your midst, but you cannot see me. This is Jesus Christ speaking. And then verse 11 says, all flesh is corrupted before me. And I thought both of those are, like, perpetuating this idea that 
the body is bad and like setting Jesus Christ Mm -hmm. up as someone who is separate from his body, even though, as we talked about last week, the soul is the body and the spirit and Jesus Christ without his body is not an accurate representation of his soul, right? And so talking about being unable to see Jesus Christ and yet he's there is just another way to like erase part of his soul. And I think it both perpetuates the idea that temporal things and bodily things are bad and also so much of Christian history bodies have been bad things to be escaped from, you know? Mm. And like going into verse 11 of section 38, all flesh is corrupted before me. How do I say this? I think some people would argue, oh, they don't really mean flesh. They just mean people. Like flesh is just standing for people. So you can read it as all people are corrupted, which in and of itself, I I disagree with. (laughs) But still, just because that's what they intended doesn't mean that you can get away from the impact of your words and saying all flesh is corrupted before me, you really are like cementing this idea that the body is evil and that we want to escape it, which is really funny considering how much we want to be resurrected in this church, you know, (laughs) with what you're talking about with the flesh garments spotted with flesh and their flesh falling off because they're in the fire. Like that just takes it one step further as in, all flesh is corrupted before me, and so let's just burn it off. It's so corrupt that we just we don't even want to do anything to it. We just want to escape it. Yeah, it's interesting that they jumped from that to sin. It still is making that association that flesh and body is bad. Right, so it's bringing in context of what it actually means when it says garments are spotted with flesh, like the history behind it, mm-hmm. but then it still makes that comparison The Lord compares disease with sin and thus commands us to avoid anything associated with sin and avoid, it doesn't say this, but I'm adding on to it, avoid anything that is associated with disease because gross, you know, like frick. (laughs) People are just so scared of their bodies in the church and like of the things that bodies can do. Like they have this narrow idea of what bodies can and should do. And if you're outside of that, then you're evil or you're corrupted or you're a failure or you're weak or something to be saved. Like if your body can run and walk and preach the gospel, then it's perfect. But if you do more than that and you start like using your body in other instances of like, I don't know, maybe choosing to have consensual sex, then that's too much. You're using your body too much. Mm. Now the body's evil. But if your body cannot run or walk because you're disabled, then you're a weak thing and you have no agency. You have no will, you know? It's just so funny, like, this kind of fence that they have of what the body can and should do. Mm. In section 35, we see this as well. Verse 11 talks about Babylon, and Babylon is supposed to be the metaphor for wickedness. But they talk about Babylon, and they use female language to describe Babylon. And they say that everyone who has drunk out of her fornications is bad. I'm just like, what? Do we really need to say why this is bad language? And then in my notes, I was like, maybe we should. So let me just say this really quick. Like, you are not better than someone else because you don't have sex, okay? And someone else is not a worse person than you just because they do have sex. Like, (sighs) and connecting this back to, like, the body thing in and of itself, like, yes, I think it's sexist. But if you connect it to all these other things, all these bodily metaphors that we see, you kind of get this idea, this pattern of 
body things are bad unless you do this, 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 this. Mm-hmm. And apparently if you fornicated, then you're a woman. <sighs> Regardless of what this verse meant, talking about impact instead of intent, like this perpetuates the language of rape culture and further like enforces it in the church. And I just needed to point that out because rape culture is not respecting other people's and specifically women and assigned female at birth, people's bodily autonomy. And people who perpetuate rape culture, people who assault women and non-binary and assigned female at birth, people, these assaulters are doing it because they don't respect the agency that the other person has over their body, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's sexist, but it's also like ableist because you're not respecting someone's choice to do what they want to do with their body and they don't want to participate in sex, then don't. And this is what I meant by earlier with the church is bad with boundaries. Like actually when you, if you threaten someone with death, then in a court of law, then that counts as you manipulating them and them having their agency like inhibited, you know? So if you're threatening someone with like eternal death or like eternal damnation, saying if you don't join the church or if you leave the church, then you're having eternal donation, that's actually an infringement on their agency. Because if someone is making a decision out of fear, then they're not really making that decision of their own free will. It should be a pretty clear-cut thing. If someone says no, they don't want to participate. Well, I'm glad that you pointed out that it gives female verbiage around it. It says, The same which has made all nations drink of the wine from the wrath of her fornication. Often it's the woman that's seen as the one that's tempting away the mm-hmm. righteous men. And otherwise, there I would have been single to the Lord. How many times do we see that in the scriptures where it's the woman's fault for leading men away? And it's never the men's fault, you know? Yeah. Rick. In case you don't believe us about why this kind of rhetoric is bad, you just have to look at the killing spree that happened in Atlanta, Georgia recently, you know, and this domestic terrorist was a man, he was a white man, he was a Christian man, and the defense that he gave for killing, I think there were eight people total that he killed, two were not Asian and only one was a man but six were Asian women and the defense that he gave was that they were tempting him and he just couldn't control it anymore that's the implication right that someone's tempting you and you don't want to be tempted and so you just want to eliminate it right you just want to remove the temptation temptation, you know burn the flesh like these scriptures are talking about I feel like this episode's kind of like we're getting really critical of these scriptures, but I think it's necessary. I need people to know that your scriptures have impact. And yeah, that guy might not have been a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but he was still like Christian. And these ideas are prevalent throughout Christian rhetoric and Christian scriptures and interpretations of the scriptures. And if we want to do better, we need to like call it out when we see it and so this is us calling it out yeah that's my commentary about that one of my last things i wanted to mention really quick when it talks about the saints moving to ohio in the book the saints it talks about being called to go and people had to make their choice and a lot of people gave up land and lost a lot of money because they had to leave so quickly they just sold it to whoever would buy it and it was a really hard decision for a lot of people to move 
It talks about Emma Smith, one of our favorite people, Joseph's <laughs> wife. During the move to Ohio, she was pregnant with twins and, quote, recovering from a long bout of sickness. Mm-hmm. And she still chose to climb on the sleigh with Joseph. And it says, quote, she was determined to also go to Ohio despite being super sick. I feel like <laughs> most of the writings we're coming upon with her, it's talking about her facing some awful sickness, and she just had so much in her life to go through. Yeah, I do admire her. I also kind of feel bad for her that she, like, felt pressured to, like, keep going instead of resting mm-hmm. when her body was under the weather, is to put it lightly. But you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, to close out... Um, <laughs> this was kind of a, uh, kind of a, I don't know if it was heavy, but we were just, like, very critical in this episode, um, which I don't think is a bad thing, um, in and of itself, but I just wanted to, like, end it with a slightly more hopeful note. Like, we did find some things that we liked in these scriptures, and so one thing that I did like in section 35, um, is verse 20, talking about Sidney Rigdon, and it said, thou shalt write for him, meaning that Sidney Rigdon is commanded to write for Joseph. And I um, was thinking about what you said, Katie, about like going through the scriptures and looking out for um, accommodations. And I was like, hey, that's an accommodation. Like Sidney Rigdon was um, commanded to write for Joseph. And I, um, I mean, I could talk about this a lot. Like why aren't, why can't we do that in the church nowadays? You know, like have scribes for people who can't write or, you know what I mean? But still call them to, to leadership positions. But I'll just say, I'll leave it on this note and say that I'm glad that there's more scriptural evidence for people in leadership positions needing accommodations. And I hope that we can draw on that and, um, and recognize that just because you need help doesn't mean that you're not able to serve in a leadership position, you know, that you're not able to, like, contribute to the work, right? Um, Anyway, what did you think about that? Well, actually, that made me think of my favorite section of this. Mine is in Doctrine and Covenants 38. It's 23 through 27, and it's pretty much just talking about becoming one Mm -hmm. as saints. It talks about teach one another... Let every man esteem his brother as himself and practice virtue and holiness before me. I say unto you, be one. If you're not one, you're not mine. Once again, I want to emphasize the importance of how this gospel is for everyone. And we need to treat it as so. We need to welcome people from all different walks of life and help it to be a safe space. If we're not creating a safe space and welcoming every person, we're going against what God wants for his gospel. And if you believe that he's the leader of this church, then you won't do that. You will make sure that you make a safe space, even if people look different than what you think is the way to live your life. We need to make a space for disabled people. We need to make a space for transgender people, people of different races and cultures. We need to not put one culture above the other in a church Mm -hmm. and we need to have equality in the money. It's been mentioned before that young women's budgets are smaller than young men's budgets. And sometimes relief society budgets are smaller than elders quorum budgets. 
sometimes minority groups that have branches have less space than other wards or branches, less resources. Why is that? We need to really consider where that's coming from and that it's not of God. We shouldn't be afraid to point out that that's racist or that that's ableist when we treat people that way, that that's being anti-LGBTQ, transphobia. We need to point that out and realize that those things are not of God. I think some people are afraid of of their, like, rights in quotes rights being taken away by these people who are um different from them but i think that fear comes from a scarcity mindset um both in terms of like like oh god's love is a limited resource and the money in the church is a limited resource but um just a reminder that God's love is infinite and the church has a hundred billion dollars in uh, investment accounts in Salt Lake. That's so, um, pretty close to infinite money uh, according to the needs of its own people. Yeah. Like if yeah. our own people have needs to be able to function in the church and serve and do their callings and have basic needs themselves, like mm-hmm. the church should quickly and easily answer that. Yeah. Every time... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if this is relevant, but every time someone like the church, the church like gives something to charity, like they paid for some vaccines in a foreign country or like they're helping rebuild houses and they donated like one million dollars and people are like, oh, wow, so much money. I'm like, y'all, that's they're paying less towards charity than you pay towards tithing and they're rich and you're poor. You know, like literally if they're percentage wise, percentage wise, like I, I, I just. I shouldn't have to Google this. <laughs> uh, 10% of $100 billion is $10 billion. If you hold the church to the same standard that you hold yourself as a poor person, if you hold this big institution that has all this power, then they should be donating $10 billion to charity and to like caring for the poor and needy. And that's still only 10% of their income. You know what I mean? Like... <sighs> Not trying to like. I wanted to end this episode on a good note. My point is, my point is, the church has a lot of money, okay? Like, and it could use that money a lot more wisely than it is now in terms of actually caring for people who need it. In terms of like, I don't know, maybe funding more scholarships for people who want to go to church schools but don't but can't afford it, you know, or um, funding multicultural programs on campus at BYU-Idaho. BYU-Idaho recently cut, like, as of, like, it's like just a few years ago, it was back right, right when I was graduating from BYU-Idaho, they cut all the on-campus multicultural programs, like, all the clubs for people, for international students, and they said, oh, you can meet together, but um, you can't use our resources and it's not sanctioned by the school, you know, and that, that makes me upset because the church works so hard to, um, how do I say this tactfully? Um, I don't care about being tactful. Um, the church works so hard to like convert people all around the world. And then of course those people want to like come to quote unquote, Zion and like go to a church school and meet their eternal companion but then you're not even like you're bringing them here but then you're leaving them alone like you're not even giving them any resources to like feel like they're at home to feel like they have a community you know anyway right that goes into don't choose to force 
a certain culture over another culture. Yeah. Like people are bringing different cultures into the church and that should be valued and celebrated and mm-hmm. honored, you know, and that means providing them resources on school campuses, mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today, listening again and supporting us. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at holyhuman, W-H-O-L-Y-H-U-M-A-N. You can look at our episodes and transcripts at holyhumanpodcast.com. Our email is holyhumanpodcast at gmail.com. And our Patreon is patreon.com slash holyhumanism. We also want to thank Matthew for our intro and outro music. We accessed the song through freesound.org. We will see you next time.